Welcome to The Natural Health Revolution, a weekly podcast that focuses on bringing science and nature together by bringing you the top experts from the fields of science, health, nutrition, and well-being. We are Circle of Light, bringing you wholesome, all-natural ingredients to help you on your journey to long-term well-being. Take care of your gut health with our delicious Fiber 89 soluble drinks. Reap the nutritious, natural benefits of the unroasted green coffee bean with our unique green coffee range. And restore your body with our all-natural herbal night drink, Triple Z. Choose health the natural way. I'm Dr. Sarah Kelly, CEO of Circle of Light. Join us as we dig into all things health and find some inspiration along the way. And today we are talking about all things gut health. It's a phrase we're hearing more and more, but what do people mean when they say that gut health is good health? For this, I wanted to turn to an expert on the gut, and I'm delighted to be joined by Lorraine Cooney, founder of the Gut Health Clinic at the Blackrock Clinic in Dublin, and an invaluable source of information to me as I made my journey from research labs and academia to Circle of Light. I want to share her vast knowledge with listeners, and I hope that you come away feeling as enlightened and empowered as I do every time I speak with Lorraine. Lorraine obtained a degree in human nutrition from University of Ulster and a master's in dietetics from Glasgow Caledonian University. During her career, she developed a special interest in the dietary management of irritable bowel syndrome and inflammatory bowel disease, and currently works as a specialist gastrointestinal dietitian at Blackrock Clinic. She set up the Gut Health Clinic at the Blackrock Clinic over two years ago, where she enjoys the challenge of helping people resolve gut health issues. Hi Lorraine, thank you for being with us today, you're very welcome. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. So to start, what is our microbiome? So our microbiome refers to the trillions of microbes that reside in our intestines. So the GI tract is your mouth and then your esophagus down to your stomach. Then you've got your small intestine and large intestine. And the majority of these microbes reside in your large intestine. It refers to mostly bacteria, but also viruses and fungi. And for most of time until recent years, um, most doctors and scientists believed that these bacteria were probably harmful and didn't really have a role to play in health. But that's all been turned on its head. And we now recognise that these have a huge role to play in our overall health. And it's about having a balance of microbes within our intestines that's important. And when it's not balanced, it's called dysbiosis. And a dysbiosis has been linked to over 70 different chronic diseases. So that's just some perspective into how important these little um, critters are and that we're just discovering in the last, say, 10 years or so. Um, and there have a multitude of roles to play within the body and in health um, that are obviously just always just being discovered as well. It's a new science. But the microbiome is an acquired organ. We're not born with it. We okay. gain it over time. Um, and what we're looking for, a sign of like good gut health is diversity of microbes within one's gut. So the more diversity you have, it's a sign that you have better gut health. You do have some good and some bad, and but it's about them living in harmony with each other. Um, so with any ecosystem, yeah. it's about them all maybe getting on with each other and within balance. Okay. So if one is flourishing more than the other, maybe that things are out of kilter okay. and something different is happening, okay. which you don't really want that to happen. So how important is the gut for our immune function? Well, it's linked because people may not know this, but about 70% of your immune system is actually located along the gut lining. People don't know that. And that's part of gut health as well. 
and your microbes may communicate with your immune system and maybe communicate maybe this as pathogens. It's very complex processes. It's not that we can, you can't boost your immune system, say, for example, by taking a certain vitamin or mineral. That's a fallacy that doesn't actually exist. But what we can do is we can um, help support our immune system with different diet and lifestyle um, factors, such as eating a varied diet with lots of plant-based foods, sleeping well, managing stress. And when it comes to disease, as we know, washing our hands and taking our vaccines, for example, they're all things that we can do to help that our immune system rather than focusing saying that one supplement is going to boost it. Yeah, of course. And you touched on it there. But so in for people who are listening, what dietary advice can you give for people to improve their approach or improve their gut health? I think one of the most interesting parts of research that's come out recently is the ability of plant-based foods to change the diversity of bacteria and microbes that reside. Which in is the gut. key, isn't it? That's yeah, the, the key. So we want to know how to increase our diversity. If that's the marker for gut health, how do we do that? And one of the biggest studies to date, and it's not the strongest of evidence, but it's something to go with, is that people who have a large diversity of plant-based foods in their diet tend to have more diversity of microbes in their gut. And the number 30 is bandied around. It's not an exact number, but it's something to aim for. It's a nice target. <laughs> yeah, it's a target. And yeah. I guess when you think about plant-based foods, many people would think it's just vegetables and fruits. But in fact, it includes all your whole grains, your vegetables and fruits, your nuts, your seeds, your beans, your pulses and herbs and spices. So all of these that end up in your shopping trolley week on week, if you are to have a look, how many of these are in your shopping trolley? Um, people may, for example, it's not as it's not as hard as maybe it sounds. Thirty different plant-based foods. You're thinking, oh my I'm God, glad how to hear you say the latter there because definitely when I heard that, I was like, I don't even know if I could name thirty plants. And some people may just have cereal, bread, and potatoes every day. So if you can get, you can just vary that a little bit. Maybe you have some rice, or maybe you have some bulgur wheat. Maybe you have some quinoa. Maybe you have some barley and oats, for example. So there's lots of different whole grains that you can choose from. And so it's kind of thinking outside the box and maybe changing, yeah. maybe changing your recipes, maybe things that your go tos, you yeah. know, maybe change it up a little. Yeah, if you always use broccoli and peas and carrots, maybe next week you're going to add some cauliflower in there or green beans, mushrooms, onions, for example. So it's not choosing the same vegetables every week is trying to have a variety of vegetables. And that's pretty easy to achieve with our supermarkets and pick up something new that you haven't had in a while. Yeah. And try that. I'll not even open up the can of worms of how do you get children to. <laughs> so I have two, three kids and they will eat maybe broccoli, maybe carrots, but anything else that they don't recognise, they really struggle with that. So I think it's nearly hiding it maybe in sauces or in hiding stews. It or maybe bringing them to the supermarket and asking them to, what would they like to try? Yeah, actually, Or yeah. maybe involving them in the cooking or what would you like to eat or would you like to try this or... I don't know, give stars. If you try this, just try this. I'll give you a star. Yeah, because that's the stuff, I, as soon as, when I hear you talking there about, you know, people having the same go-tos, I'm starting to feel guilty, you know, for my kids and their per microbiome. But yeah, I suppose it's, you just have to find ways to expose them to more. I think another thing is the fruit bowl, but we can all benefit from that. So if you always buy just apples and bananas, maybe mm-hmm. you can have three or four more different fruits in your shopping trolley. And with nuts and seeds, you can get mixed nuts and mixed seeds, or you can combine them and put them on your desk or put them on your worktop. And beans and pulses, sometimes if you like your bolognese, why don't you add in some lentils into it mm-hmm. or maybe try a vegetarian recipe once a week. Yeah, I think we and, all probably could do with that. Yeah. And that's all very much achievable. But I think the key probably is just the shopping trolley. 
So have a look. What do you buy normally? And when you do a weekly shop, if you come out with a few more every week, then you're going to be increasing the, the variety. And that's the key. Yeah. That's, well, that's part of it. That's yeah, one and, aspect. And again, I suppose maybe this is a very simple question, but a very, like, what is it in plants? That. Um, so we have over probably up to 100 different types of fibre within all the different plant-based foods. So if you think you have trillions of microbes residing in your gut, they're hungry, they want to be fed, but they all like different foods. So the more variety of plant-based foods you have, the more likely you're going to feed all your bacteria what they're looking for. So these guys are hungry. We as humans do not digest fibre. We don't have the enzyme to break down fibre. But when the fibre reaches your large intestine, that's where the microbes are and they are really happy to be fed a whole variety of plant-based foods because that's their favourite food. Um, And there's other foods as well. There's something called um, polyphenols. This can come under the bracket of um, something that's not digested by humans as well, but that our microbes love. Um, I'll give you some examples of foods that contain polyphenols, some fruits like your berries and some vegetables like artichoke, red onion, spinach, black olives. Um, You've got olive oil as as well, some nuts. So strong Um, colours, is that what you said? Dark 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 colours, yeah. And you've also got some nuts like pecans and almonds or flax seeds. And it's also in things like red wine and dark chocolate, which people may have heard of like being beneficial for us or being healthy. and that's because of the polyphenols. And as well, I suppose, from my perspective, I've always been interested. I know roasted coffee is often touted as having health-enhancing benefits, but we now realise that so many of the health benefits are destroyed during the roasting process. And it's the unroasted green coffee bean is actually very rich in those polyphenols as well. But the key is that it's the unroasted green coffee. So it's during the roasting process that those health-enhancing benefits are destroyed. Isn't that right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, Another factor with diet may be your essential fatty acids, such as like omega-3s, which you find in oily fish or other healthy fats like you'd find in nuts and seeds like we've mentioned already, avocado and your olive oil. So those are the kind of main dietary components that we can have more of them in our diet. We're likely to have a more diverse microbiome. Okay, very good. And speaking about feeding our microbiome, our gut bacteria, talk to me about fermented foods. There's a lot of buzz around, you know, fermented foods and particularly recently because of a research study that yeah. emerged. Yeah, yeah, we've kind of a study that maybe we've all been waiting for. There's been lots of studies before for fermented foods, but not really many in human trials. So we really want human trials because we're not, we're not animals and we might respond differently. Um, but it's long been known that fermented foods are beneficial for health. We just don't have the studies maybe to back them up. But this recent trial was a little bit extreme in that it used six portions of fermented foods per day in a diet. Yes, so on a good day, I might get two or three if I'm lucky. So six is a bit out of reach, but it was was just demonstrating something, I think, that by the people over this 12-week period had six portions of fermented food per day at increased microbial diversity and decreased inflammation. So these are exactly what we're looking for within the gut and in a trial. And I hope that they repeat it with smaller numbers of fermented foods so we can see what is the recommendation. Yeah, is there a as, threshold? Yeah, yeah that you yes, have to we reach. don't know. But um, I am in favour of people trying fermented food. One, they're very tasty. It adds a lot of interest to the diet. I think they probably do contribute in some way to, to gut health. I wouldn't feel under pressure to include fermented foods, but if you liked them and you were intrigued and interested, there's so many to choose from that you could try and have. And if you were someone, because I've, you know, heard about, you know, fermented foods and that we should try them. And anytime I've kind of gone and looked about them, it just seemed either they're hard to find or they don't necessarily appeal to me. So I know sauerkraut is one of them, right? And I'm not a big fan. And kefir is something you you, you make at home yourself. You can make it at home. Um, it's very easy to make at home with some grains and some milk and literally takes five or 10 minutes 
every day that you'd have this fresh kefir drink and you can make it with milk or you can make it with water and you that's probably the best way to do it making it at home versus buying it in the shops but I see all the supermarkets have some kefir in stock these days so if you want the convenience factor you could just buy it in the shops and try it and do you think that's worth trying so I think definitely yeah. it's worth trying and that's an easy one to get yeah. and you can add it to your cereals your overnight oats you could add it to a smoothie yeah of course you, know, you just don't have to drink it straight but it is um that's a nice one to begin with I think some of the fermented vegetables I guess that maybe people don't want them but it's a nice addition to maybe a barbecue or a burger or some sort of veggie falafel bowl type of thing that you could add some fermented vegetables and what as well yogurt live yogurt yeah, is so that live bio yogurt? yogurt even in the trial that was probably one of the most popular foods that people had yeah that's an easy um, one though isn't yeah, it so it's, yeah, it's a whole aisle dedicated to yogurts in supermarkets so you can pick the one that you like live or bio other things that maybe people don't think about will be to snack on some olives maybe try some sourdough bread um, olives okay yeah. i can um, manage those yeah. yeah try some pickles um there's something called tempeh which is a meat alternative okay. and you can buy that in jars in the supermarket yeah and so it's worth trying kombucha yeah. kombucha yeah. yeah and again as you said the supermarkets more and more you're seeing things like kombucha drinks and um it's certainly very drinks. trendy yeah um, but now that we have this maybe first sign that there is something really beneficial for fermented food there's more yeah. motivation to include them i know that's, that's something that i'm trying to do as well so yeah so even getting a couple or even trying one. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Yeah, and it's worth it's worth a shot. And it's probably like everything, individuality kind of comes into that. So it might have benefit for some some people, it might not for others. Yeah, exactly. We all respond different yeah. to all of these foods and to fibres and to polyphenols and probably things like probiotics. We all respond differently because this microbiome is unique to each individual. So mine and yours are not the same Actually, yours is the same as nobody else's in the whole wide world. It's unique to you. So it depends on ratios of bacteria and microbes that reside there, their richness, the numbers, etc. So it's complex. I think the more and more evidence that's coming out, the more that we can patch it all together. Yeah. And it's really hard to keep up with all the evidence. Oh, I can imagine <laughs> it's a really exciting and interesting area it's to be really in. Really fascinating. Yeah. And but we do want that good quality trials to support the messages with fermented food. If you like them, include yeah. them. If not, you know, you don't eat something that you don't like. We all want to find ways to get more fibre into our diet. Circle of Light makes it easy with our delicious Fibre 89, a simple and tasty way to increase your daily fibre intake in one cup. Give your gut some love with Fibre 89, available at all good supermarkets, pharmacies and health food stores, or find us online at circleoflight.ie. So you've sort of mentioned the foods and how, you know, from a diet perspective that we can, you know, enhance or affect our gut. Are there other things, like what else affects our gut, either negatively or positively? Well, negatively, um, most people probably make a stab at a guess of what would negatively impact the gut. But processed foods and high sugary foods, saturated fat, um, things like sweeteners, emulsifiers, really if you think about a processed diet or a westernized diet, that has a negative effect on the gut microbiome. It's kind of common sense in ways. So more common it? sense. Yeah. The stuff that we know maybe yeah, we shouldn't we be eating a lot of exactly, is probably yeah. have a negative effect. Whereas yeah. diets such as the Mediterranean diet or other healthy diets like the Norwegian diet or Japanese diets, these are all the healthy diets in the world. And they've been shown to be affect, you know, chronic disease risk, maybe cognitive health. 
um, mental health state, um, just for example. So we know that that's what we should be aiming for to eat. I think it just becomes more sophisticated with the message of 30 different plant-based foods per week. That's something else that we can all maybe aim for um, with a focus on gut health. It's so interesting. And even, again, you were referred for as well, like things like your activity or your exercise and stress levels, things like that as well. Can they impact our gut? There's a lot of talk about, you know, the I suppose that they're hand in hand, you know, issues with gut and maybe periods of anxiety or depression or things like that. Is there a connection? Oh, absolutely. There's something called the gut-brain axis. So this is bi-directional communication between your brain and your gut. So your gut talks to your brain, your brain talks to your gut all, all the time. And this isn't a mental health thing. This is more the millions of neurons and nerve endings that reside from your brain down to your gut. Yeah. And something that you might have heard of is the vagus nerve. So there's communication via that with your microbes, the gut microbiota, through metabolites that they can produce called short-chain fatty acids, through communication with the immune system, which we mentioned earlier, um, through the vagus nerve. And there's some really cool cells called intro-endocrine cells that produce hormones. And that's part of the whole gut-brain axis as well, the vagus nerve. And that's the, what we refer to as the parasympathetic yeah. nervous system. And that's the opposite of what we call the sympathetic nervous system, which yeah. people might know as fight or flight. Yes, indeed. So when yeah. you're in a... When you're stressed out or yeah. on the go, the that panic might be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So these lifestyle factors can affect the gut-brain axis, yeah. such as stress levels, poor sleep, mm-hmm. activity probably has a role to play there yeah. as well. And it goes both ways then. So if you have issues with your microbiome, that could impact your sleep. But also if you have poor sleep in terms of quality and quantity, that could also impact yeah. your gut health, correct? Yeah, and that's early days of research as well. But your microbiome has a circadian rhythm, like a body clock, and disturbed sleep can affect its rhythm. So in just two days of sleep deprivation, it can impact your microbiome, which is um, scary, boggling, really. Yeah, <laughs> when you have young children, it's exactly, very scary to hear. Yeah, yeah. some things that are out of your control. But um, I think it's just really interesting that this is being discovered. So lack of quality sleep or lack of hours of sleep um, would affect your microbiome, and think I think vice versa. If you have if your poor di- microbiome diversity, it can affect your sleep. Um, okay. This is just being discovered. Something else that's really intriguing is that lack of sleep can affect your appetite. Um, this is probably via the microbiome as well. So we, it's been shown that if you have a poor sleep, that you are likely to want to eat more calories the next day, up to what is equivalent of approximately 200 calories. And you're kind of craving the higher fat, lower protein foods as well. So The stuff that your gut, the bacteria, don't enjoy probably exactly, as much. Yeah, yeah. But um, okay. it's... Um, a lot of discoveries on that part. So sleep is really the backbone of health and sleep hygiene is another buzzword yeah. to be bandied out there. Um, people are kind of curious as to know well, what does that mean as well, yeah. but it really refers to good quality sleep and getting enough sleep. Yeah. So somewhere between seven and nine hours is optimal. And yeah. there's lots of different tips, simple things that you can do to improve your sleep. But trying to go to bed at the same time and getting up at the same time in around one hour uh, pre or post that is a, is a good thing to start with and not, not to be on your phone all night. It's funny, yeah. <laughs> I suppose from our perspective with we our herbal nitrate triple Z, that's one of the things that we always say to people, you know, this isn't a pharmaceutical sedative. You can't just, you know, sit on your phone to 12 o'clock at night, switch it off, you know, drink triple Z and close your eyes and think that you'll go to sleep. It really is. We always encourage people to kind of find their, you know, their nighttime rituals. So it's turning off devices, or you know leaving your phone outside the bedroom like I am so I'm guilty of, like, I'm guilty of it you know it's the last thing that I see before I go to bed and I use it as my alarm so that's kind of my excuse but like I just need to buy an alarm clock it's hard not to scroll there's that and it, that's habit I think maybe swapping yeah. to maybe reading um 
is, yeah. is a nicer way to go yeah. to sleep. Um, but also your diet may affect your sleep quality as well. So not going to bed too full, not going to bed too hungry um, and not drinking a lot of caffeinated drinks. Of course. Um, yeah. Later on in the day, they kind of say maybe cut off as 3 p.m. if you find that caffeine would affect your sleep. So there's lots of different things that people can work on to just simple factors to improve their sleep. I think it's really important and it's coming out more and more in the literature yeah, really how important is. it yeah. is. No, it really is. One of the things um, I wanted to ask you about, and funny, it's probably one of the questions that we get asked the most. So with inulin being one of our staple ingredients in our Circuit of Life products, and it's classified as a prebiotic fibre, people reach out to us all the time to ask us, what is a prebiotic? So again, until we launched Circle of Light, I didn't realise how little people knew about prebiotics. So everyone seems to be familiar with the term probiotics. So can you tell us, like, what is the difference between a probiotic and a prebiotic? It's very easy to confuse them because they sound so similar. So prebiotic is, um, it does have a definition in that it's a substrate that's utilized by your microbes that confer a health benefit. So prebiotics kind of have to demonstrate how good they are as food for your bacteria. So the easiest way to think of it is that pre, the P-R-E, is food for your gut microbes. And these are the, their favorite foods. And prebiotics are all fiber containing foods. But just to make it even more confusing, not all fiber foods are prebiotics. So it's only okay. certain fiber foods that are come under the definition of prebiotics. Okay. And how are you supposed to know the difference or, you know, if you're trying to increase, I suppose, the prebiotics in your diet? I don't even think that you would separate them. Okay. I would still think like just looking for a diversity of plant-based foods, you'd probably get some prebiotics in most of them. But really good sources would include your wheat um, and some rye, some barley. And then it would also include vegetables like onion and garlic and mushrooms and Brussels sprouts, probably sweet potato, for example. And then when you're with your fruits, it'd be apples and pears, stone fruits. Okay. Um, so again, it goes back to diversity. diversity. Yeah, diversity is, is, key. is simple. I wouldn't even, yeah. I wouldn't... Consciously try to... Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. it just becomes too confusing. Yeah. But if you have a wide variety of plant-based foods, you're going to increase the number of prebiotics in your diet. And that's key. So your microbes would be happy because they're well-fed. Yeah, of course. And they get on with doing their jobs. And then probiotics? Probiotics then are live bacteria. So this is has a definition as well. So these are live microbes and when consumed, confer a health benefit on the host. So they have to be scientifically proven to have an effect on the body. So something that you consume, sometimes you get it in food such as yogurt or your fermented foods. But a lot of these won't have been, say, assessed or quantified as a probiotic. We know they have live bacteria, so that may sound confusing, but yeah. those foods, as we demonstrated, are um, beneficial for our gut health. But you can also get them in formulations such as tablets or liquid form that you would take. And there's lots of, lots and lots of probiotics on the market. Yeah, it's, it's quite a confusing space. And even there's a bit of, I suppose, controversy over whether, you know, taking the probiotics, if they make it through the stomach acid and make their way to your gut. Yeah, and some of the some of the brands have demonstrated that they can reach the intestine and confer a health benefit. But again, they should be in a certain quantity, usually in high numbers, and they vary specific strains within a probiotic. But in general terms, there's not enough evidence to say we should take a probiotic if you've got no issue. Okay, so, so these are, you don't just take it as part as your everyday... No, it's not really backed up. Like you okay. might just be wasting your money. But if you have a condition, so sometimes when I work in the gut health space or with digestive issues, mm -hmm. there's certain probiotics I find work with certain symptoms and therefore I would recommend them because they've been proven in 
clinical trials to confer a benefit. It's a little bit of trial and error all the same, but I do think they're, they definitely have a worthy space. In. And one of the, the like prebiotics and probiotics, can they be taken at the same time? Yeah, again, I suppose I'd use that, what we just described, that using a probiotic, why are you using it and what are you using it for? Um, so obviously then if you take a probiotic and a prebiotic separately, then I would say if it's for the right reasons, then yes, that's what you find. Yeah, absolutely. So let's address the wind or the bloating issue. Some people seem to tolerate um, prebiotics better than others and some people, is that a just a total individual thing? Is that a sensitivity thing? So some people would find, and we would find again with inulin and particularly say with fibre 89, we find some people can jump in and no issues, can drink, you know, two or three servings, take two or three servings a day, where there's other people we nearly need to tell them, no, you need to start with half a serving and build it up. Is that to do with just the high dose of fibre that they're not used to it or? Yeah, there's a couple of elements in there that maybe I can pick up on, but I do think if somebody increases their fibre very quickly, you're giving a lot more food to your bacteria. So they're not used to this. And so a consequence of increasing your fibre too quickly is gut symptoms such as bloating or a lot of gas or maybe a little bit of abdominal discomfort. So even advice in my clinic, I would say if you're increasing fibre to do it slowly, you know, you don't have to go from zero to 100 overnight. You want to slowly increase the number of plant-based foods in your diet. I should have said that earlier, actually, because yes. it's a really important part of this. It is actually. And it's something that I've heard people people who have, you know, decided to become vegan. It has sort of been hit them kind of like, yeah, <laughs> like so a train. If you go yeah. Vegan overnight. Yes. yes. Yeah, you're likely to suffer. So you've yeah. got to go slowly. And then some people would react differently because you've got different sensitive stomachs. So um, if you've anyway inclined to have symptoms and you take a prebiotic supplement, the idea is that you would start very, very slowly and gradually built up. And sometimes I say just go at snail pace. Yes. So you could take half a teaspoon for two weeks and yes. then increase to a teaspoon. Yes. And then you allow your gut to adapt to it. Yeah. But basically the prebiotics are food for your bacteria. So you give them lots of this in large dose, say. Your bacteria are going to be so happy. The big party yeah. down in your gut <laughs> but you may suffer the hangover yeah. which is more bloating and, and but it's wind. not harmful right like it's not no. a bad thing it's just it's uncomfortable it's uncomfortable but it's actually probably a sign that your bacteria are well fed okay so yeah. you're trying to find a balance so obviously you don't want these symptoms no so the sensible advice is what you're saying is just go nice and slowly yeah, and titrate, titrate up there's yes. no rush <laughs> Yeah. And so Lorraine, you set up the Gut Health Clinic at the Black Rock Clinic. Is it two years ago, three years ago? Three years ago now. Okay. Yeah. And how has that, how have, again, the last 18 months I know has been crazy for everyone, but how have you managed? Um, so I guess maybe a silver lining of COVID is that um, I could use virtual consultations like so many other people yes, around the country um, because a dietetic consultation isn't really a physical exam. So um, that worked really well. And um, before that, would you have had people just from the Dublin area as it's, would you have ever had people from around the country before? I mean, people might travel, but there was no mention of virtual I always thought it was a great idea yeah, of <laughs> but course. before everyone learned how to use zoom there was never going to be a runner but now I know just overnight everyone yeah everything moved you on you kind of best of both worlds I'm yeah. delighted to see some people coming back face to face and some yeah. people prefer that yeah. um, but for people who who want an hour just in their day virtual that can yeah. work too so best of both worlds yeah sometimes it's time actually looking after yourself and making those appointments for yourself it's sometimes finding the time to make the appointment and take the time off work so when it's just an hour yeah it's probably easier to facilitate if it is remote and tell me who like what type of patients or what conditions do you work with in the clinic so for the majority of people it's those with gut symptoms and um, so that could be a number of digestive conditions mostly in irritable bowel syndrome or IBS maybe inflammatory bowel disease such as Crohn's disease or colitis diverticular disease chronic constipation reflux 
gastroparesis, that, that's really the majority. I, I see anybody else, but really if you've got a gut symptom, we know that dietary interventions and lifestyle interventions can be very effective. Yeah, and yeah. I, do you know what I say? It's until we launched Circle of Light and I've started talking openly to my friends, to my family, to anyone I meet, talking about, you know, constipation, talking about IBS, talking, you know, openly about these things that kind of, I suppose there's a bit of a taboo about talking about that space. 100%. Which you probably Yeah, it's actually this. termed the poo taboo. <laughs> yeah, poo taboo. I love that. Yeah. Even to say the word poo, people can feel quite embarrassed yes. or shy and think it's something that you can't publicly speak about. But actually, it's really important. Um, so your number twos, when you poo, can tell you so much about your health. So yeah. if anybody's listening and they want to look up a lovely, gruesome graphic called the Bristol Stool Chart, they can get an idea maybe what theirs look like compared to normal. Yeah. So there's different, seven different types That's of That's actually, stool. so it's the Bristol Stool Chart. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it's just an image. Just of, an yeah. image, yeah. It's on Google. Yeah, I've seen it actually. Yeah. It is very useful because no one knows what, you know, if what, what normal is, yeah. you know, until you it's physically put in front of you. Yeah. yeah. And everybody's can change day to day, but I think about a fifth of people would be too embarrassed to talk about yes. about this and yeah that's again that has been my experience so obviously speaking about constipation and relieving constipation and again something that we might mention is going into the pelvic floor space and how damaging constipation can be for the pelvic floor I think the amount of people that maybe are constipated and don't know don't realize they're constipated that's something that surprised me yeah a lot of people don't know and there's um the definition is that you have less than three bowel motions per week and they're small and pellet-like. So if you look at that Bristol stool chart, it's type one or two would be the kind of defining presentation of constipation. And you also may find that you don't move or complete a bowel motion. Um, It may be incomplete. So you feel that you haven't passed the stool fully. So those three things are indicators that you may be constipated. Um, But a lot of people don't know that they're constipated. And, or if they do, um, maybe up to 65% of people just try and treat it themselves with over-the-counter medication Mm -hmm. and not bring this issue to their, their medical person or GP but if somebody is just maybe put out there as well that if somebody is suffering with a change in bowel habit over longer than three months they should really speak up and get it checked by the GP because it could be a number of things going on. And is that something then is a a GP the person to go to as opposed to going to a dietitian for if you are someone who struggles with say constipation? Well I think both but um, it's really useful to go to your GP first to get a a diagnosis to understand why this is happening to you. Because with constipation, for example, it could be a number of reasons why you're constipated. It can be due to um, a disease, most common maybe thyroid or Parkinson's disease or a number of different things. Um, It could be due to medication that you take, such as opioids or antihistamines or again, a whole raft of medications. So it's very important to get to the bottom of it if it is long term. Yeah, it could be due to your pelvic floor that you mentioned. It could be due to slow motility. It could be due to IBS. So it's nice to kind of refine what is happening to you as a person and yeah. run a number of tests and just make sure that you know why you're you're suffering. Yeah, so if it's something that can't be resolved with stereotypically, you the recommendations would be increase your fibre, increase your fluid. So if that's not improving your symptoms or the condition, then you should, yeah, look about getting it. Particularly into. with constipation, if that's not, it's not helping, yeah, maybe you need extra support with that. Okay. Circle of Light Unroasted Green Coffee. A delicious new taste filled with the goodness of the unroasted green coffee bean, rich in prebiotic fibre for a happy gut. You only get one heart. Show it some love with Circle of Light Unroasted Green Coffee. Available at all good supermarkets, pharmacies and health food stores. Or find us online at circleoflight.ie.
And then IBS is something, um, again, that you're passionate about. I know from, you know, any conversations we've had. So is that something that, like, is that condition that you've seen, it's become more prevalent? I don't know if it's become more prevalent, but it is. it affects maybe 10% of the population. So it is a very common condition. And a lot of people over time, over years, will suffer with some sort of gut symptom. And the new evidence that we have is that we've got a lot more effective dietary and lifestyle interventions that can help manage something like irritable bowel syndrome. And this is the fascinating thing, um, is that irritable bowel syndrome has been redefined over time. And now it's known that it's a dysregulation of your gut brain axis. So something that's not quite right along that space of complex processes with metabolites, your immune system, neurotransmitters, hormones, etc. Something just isn't firing right. And that would affect your motility and perception of pain. So treatments for IBS obviously include your diet, but also I think supplements and probiotics can play a role. Um, plus also the behavioral side of things, psychological interventions are really important as well. Okay, so there's a couple of things there. There's, first of all, it can present in different ways. So there's so probably four times, okay. types actually. So there's constipation predominant IBS. So the difference between that and constipation is that you will have abdominal pain. That's sort of like Okay, because that was my next question. Yeah, <laughs> what's the difference? Okay, I'm with and you. And then you have diarrhea predominant IBS. So that's mostly diarrhea. Or you can have mixed types. So you can alternate between diarrhea and constipation. So there's a kind of three main ones that people have. And it's good to know what you have. Again, diagnosis is really important. And again, something you've obviously touched on there, there's obviously more and more research or more investigation going into looking at the connection between, you know, the brain. So obviously around times that people are, you know, highly anxious or maybe they're of a stressful situation in life, that's when their IBS symptoms might be exacerbated? Absolutely. That link is always there. And I will always ask um, patients who attend my clinic to describe their stress levels or if they have time off or go on a holiday, do symptoms improve? And that kind of gives an inkling as to how much the stress part may be playing a role. Um, but there's been some really fascinating studies. So head to head, say psychological or behavioral interventions versus diet. So one of the main diets that we would have these days for IBS is a version of what's called the low FODMAP diet. It can be used in different capacities. So, so do you want to even the FODMAP just for yeah. people maybe who aren't familiar with yeah, that? Yeah, you might have heard of it. It's just an acronym for hard to pronounce carbohydrate names. Okay. Um, and it's taking a bunch of short chain carbohydrates. So these are more fermentable carbohydrates from your diet. And actually, these are prebiotic foods. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. you take them away, what you do, but you give the gut microbes less food. And so therefore, when you take them away, people with IBS tend to have less bloating or gas or their bowel habits improve. So these foods are triggering for people with IBS. It's very effective when used properly, but it's a process. It has a beginning, a middle and an end. You have a restriction phase, which is probably up to four weeks. And then you go through a challenge phase over another couple of months. And then you have a personalization phase. So it's like a program that you do the low FODMAP diet. It's not just everyone with IBS should do the low FODMAP diet. Okay, so it's not a lifestyle. It's not a diet that you would have long term. You're not just someone, oh, I, I can't take FODMAPs. It's something that is short or temporary. Short term and yeah. It should be like all the evidence um, has been completed in trials with a dietitian given the advice okay. because it's complex and it can be really difficult to do because you have to avoid so many foods. Mm -hmm. In fact, I would use maybe a more modified version of the low FODMAP diet these days. But when we talked about our gut bacteria and our microbes, when you go on the low FODMAP diet, you change or the beneficial bacteria, quantities of the beneficial bacteria reduce. Yes, you've taken away their so you've, food. You've taken yeah, away their, their food. Fuel, yeah. So you don't want to stay on something like that long term. Restricted diets are not the way to go. 
and they're not the way to go for gut health. But it can be very helpful for people to help discover what are their triggers. But when I mentioned the gut brain access, I think it's really important to bring in something behavioral alongside that. And that is usually something in line with relaxation, stress reduction. So there's a number of different things that people can try and usually pick what you would be most suited to. So um, such as gut directed hypnotherapy, mindfulness based meditation, yoga, CBT, which would be delivered with a psychologist. So that's what I was saying, the head to head studies. So you've got CBT versus the low FODMAP diet, yoga versus the low FODMAP diet, and both interventions have the same impact on gut symptoms, both a significant impact on gut symptoms, like 70 to 80% improvement. So that's saying alone, you can use a psychological intervention and improve gut symptoms, or you can use a dietary intervention and improve gut symptoms. But also hinder your your good gut bacteria. With yeah, well, you want to find the right balance. Yeah. So for me, in my practice, I would try and combine some of these um, therapies and the combination therapies is probably the way to go. Yeah. So you'd have least restriction, but you also get down to the root of the problem, which is your gut brain access. Yeah, and you've co-written a book on FODMAP and it's called Gut Feeling, is it? Gut Feeling, yeah. <laughs> so that is just a collection of low FODMAP recipes. So if you're following a restrictive diet, it's really difficult because you have to avoid so many commonly used foods, particularly onion, garlic, wheat, mm. certain vegetables and fruits. So it's just about inspiration that if you're following this plan, that you've got some recipes to go to. Okay. Sort of a guide as well. So a guide with swaps that you can make and definitely stressing that it's um, a process. There's three parts of the low FODMAP diet. That's definitely the key because I probably became aware of the even just the term FODMAP maybe two or three years ago and again totally was discussed as remove those from your diet and it absolutely there was no mention of the short term thing there was no mention of the process or the reintroduction or personalization so I suppose that's a key takeaway isn't it? Yeah. It's not a diet for life. And in fact, there's a paper published today. So you've got a beneficial bacteria called bifidobacteria. And this is something that's significantly reduced on the low FODMAP diet. So the paper published today is the first long-term study where they followed people for one year with the restriction, reintroduction and personalization. And they showed at one year your bifidobacteria returned to normal level when you complete the three phases of the FODMAP diet. So it's exactly what we want to know is like, are these changes long-term or are they detrimental to health? No, but if you do things properly, you can find your triggers and maybe bring in some of the relaxation techniques, something that, you know, you can do on a daily basis. Combine those therapies, possibly with a probiotic. I think you can get over the line and be in control of your IBS long term. Okay. And in terms of the, it's a, it is like, it's an intervention, a clinical intervention, kind of that can't, like, it's not something you can just sort of experiment with yourself. But in general, how long would you, rec- or is there a time frame normally? Like how long does the whole process from stage one to stage three normally last? Or is that individual? Usually between three to four months, okay. no longer. But I have met people in my clinic who've been following the low FODMAP diet for a year or two years. But the downside is that their diet has become really restricted. Food fear increases. Um, you become maybe too obsessed about foods and every food is triggering. But on the flip side, symptoms have not improved. Okay. So if you're following a restrictive diet for longer than three months and your symptoms are not improving, it's not working. It's not the food side of things that's the problem. It's more likely to do with the gut-brain access. That's really good advice. Really good advice. Advice. And I'm sure there's going to be people will have, you know, loads of questions. And I suppose if there are, you know, enough queries, we might actually host a Q&A with you, Lorraine, maybe on our Instagram. So on circleoflight.ie. So if that's ha- something you'd be that. happy <laughs> to idea. do. Yeah. And again, if people are interested in, like, there's so much, we, honestly, there you're an absolute fount of information. So I could talk to you all day about this, but I'm sure there's people maybe that there's certain things that you've mentioned 
have a particular interest, you know, for themselves. Maybe they have symptoms, maybe they have certain concerns. So if people are interested in reaching out to you, so how can they make contact or how can they find you? So you can self-refer um, to my clinic. I'm on Instagram, um, Gut Health um, Clinic Blackrock. Lorraine Cooney is my name. You can just search on Instagram. I try post three or four times a week on something topical. And I love your posts. They're so, <laughs> and again, there's no poo to boo with your posts as well. So they're really yeah. interesting and simple. I think you break down a really complicated message and you make it really simple, oh, which is what is needed. Yeah. Yeah. So you can ring um, the Black Rock Clinic, find the Gut Health Clinic online. It's on the website. Um, and if you want an appointment virtually, I can arrange that or I can see you in person. Okay, amazing. And Lorraine, thank you so much. Thank you for being with us oh, today. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Natural Health Revolution. We hope you have come away more informed and empowered to make little adjustments towards a happier, healthier way of life. We are dedicated to spreading the message of natural health and we hope that if you enjoyed this episode, you will join us again for more experts and insights from the fields of health, nutrition and well-being. We would love to hear from you. So if you have any questions or want to know more about us, you can find us online at circleoflight.ie and on all social media platforms.